You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Bobby Rebel. I'm Kathleen Hutchins. Hi, this is Jamila Soufran. Hi, this is Farnish Tarabi, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. This morning was priceless. I put the earbuds in and turned on fresh air with Terry Gross and walked out my door. Five minutes later, I was on the lake. To the right was Northwestern University and landfill and two large athletic fields with the young Northwestern football players practicing, hoping they'll be able to start the 2020 season. On the left was graffitied concrete leading to an embankment and then the vast, overwhelming Lake Michigan. Beautiful. This is how I spend most mornings. But I misspoke before. I said priceless. But really, this lifestyle that I now lead came at a cost. When I moved back to Evanston, Illinois after residency, I didn't put much thought into the cost of living. I just knew that this was the place that I grew up in, and this is the place that my parents lived. Yet it became clear very quickly that there was a cost to coming back to my favorite city. In the area I live in, to get a four-bedroom house back even in 2002, you were going to spend at minimum $500,000. And I quickly learned that after purchasing that said expensive house, there was also incredibly hefty real estate taxes. In fact, I pay $15,000 a year for real estate taxes, $15,000 a year plus a $25,000 a year mortgage. And then I had kids and my daughter was at the local public school and was getting bullied mercilessly. And we made the best decision we've made in the last decade. We pulled her out and sent her to private school, and she is so incredibly happy now. It was a great decision that cost us $25,000 a year. And my wife works, and I work, and we're busy professionals and need help around the house. So add in a nanny and a housekeeper, and that's another $25,000 a year. So if you add that all up, just from the get-go... I have a $90,000 a year budget, and we haven't even talked about food or transportation. So it really knocks me out of my chair when I read these blog posts where people are talking about living on thirty dollars or $40,000 a year. 
to me, it's a really a non-starter because of where I live. And I can't even imagine if I lived in some other places in the United States. What if I lived in San Francisco? What if I lived in Hawaii? What if I lived in New York City? How could I manage my budget then? And would living in this high cost of living area be worth it? And speaking of a high cost of living, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. Bobby Rebell is a journalist, anchorwoman, and author of the book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. She is the host of the podcast, The Financial Grown-Up, as well as co-host of the Money with Friends podcast, along with the great Joe Saul Sihai. Bobby, good morning. It's always fun to get a chance to make fun of Joe Saul Sihai if we have a moment to. So is there anything you want to say about him? Well, we're going to talk about living in a high cost area of living and Joe is totally mobile at this point. He can't make up his mind. So we'll see where Joe lands. How's that? At least, at least everyone here has, has a firm decision. Yeah. At least we all know where we're going to live at the moment. We all know where we're going to live. Joe is completely undecided at this point. Kathleen Hutchins is an active member of the Earn and Invest Facebook group and the author of Cooking Up Fire, the blog. Kathleen, it seems that food and finance are intimately tied together. Yes, it is. A lot of people spend the majority of their non-transportation or uh, housing budget on food. Yeah, and certainly my intro, we hadn't even got into food costs. So that can just... You can just imagine living in some of these high cost of living areas, how much we're actually spending. Farnoosh Tarabi is an acclaimed journalist and TV personality. She is the author of several books, including her latest, When She Makes More. She is also known for award-winning podcast, So Money. Farnoosh, the title of your first book and your podcast, I believe, is a throwback to the 1990s movie Swingers and Vince Vaughn's famous line. Do you think most of your listeners realize that? I am absolutely dating myself with these titles. I would like to think that that's a pretty common pop cultural reference, but as time goes by, it's becoming more and more of an an antique of of an expression. Yeah, there's nothing that lets you know how old you actually are than when your pop culture references Mm -hmm. are no longer relevant. So I think we still have a little bit of time on that one. (laughs) I'm holding on to it as much as I can. Last but certainly not least, Jamila Soufrant left her corporate career to continue pursuing real estate, financial coaching, and her fantastic podcast, Journey to Launch. Jamila, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am excited to have all of you on, and today I'm going to get a little bit of help. I'm going to rely on my friends Carrie, Samantha, Charlotte, and Miranda for a few quotes. Yes, I'm referring to the turn of the century, dare I say turn of the century, TV show Sex and the City about four women coming of age in New York, which I might have watched the whole series through two times, maybe. So let's start with a quote from Carrie. Some people are settling down. 
Some people are settling, and some people refuse to settle for anything less than butterflies. Bobby, tell us a little bit about why you came to New York City. Was it your career? It was my family. I wanted to be where my family was, and my parents were here. My siblings are in the area, and now my husband is from the area, and his parents and siblings are also in the area. So I worked backwards from family. My career, actually, it would have been better if I had moved because I originally was looking at doing local, local news, but I got married um, in my 20s, and so I ended up staying in New York City and working my way up behind the scenes through financial television rather than local news so that I could be in New York with all of my family. And so I took the unusual career path. I think most people that want to be on-camera reporters kind of move up through the different TV markets. I had to do it. I, I mean, it's hard to say whether it's tougher or easier, but I did it in business news for that reason. And I did it working my way up from behind the scenes. And business news, by the way, does pay better. So that's of note that if you do focus within your career, knowing that New York and the New York area was going to be more expensive, that was definitely a key part in focusing on business news. Two points from that. One thing people don't realize is when they criticize you for moving to a high cost of living area, how important family truly is that a lot of people make these decisions because that's where their family is. The other is that sometimes the best paying jobs are in cities and cities are expensive. And let's be honest, family is also a lot of soft financial costs. So for example, many people have free or heavily subsidized babysitting because if you have families and aunts and uncles in the area that can take your kid when you want to go to, say, a movie night. I mean, you might get a babysitter if it's a big event, but then there's those discretionary nights, especially when you have young children, where do you really want to spend all in, you know, $100 to go to the movies, which is what it's going to cost to get the babysitter and all the organization just to go see a movie in a theater. You're probably not going to do that, but if Uncle John will come over and hang out with, you know, your baby, then it makes it a lot more easy. So a lot easier. So I think family is also a financial benefit and people forget the, the, the value of that financially as well. Kathleen, you were born in Hawaii and moved mainland. I believe the last place you lived was Texas. Talk about the decision to move back to Hawaii and why you did. So that's correct. Well, I wanted to move back home to be with my family, just like Bobby said. It's kind of a long story, but basically I have a coworker that he talked about retiring to Hawaii all the time. So he talked to me about it because he wanted desperately to move here. Three years before he's retiring, he was found by the cleaning lady at his desk, slumped over. He had passed away. He didn't make it to retirement. So at that point, I'm looking and going, should I wait? Until I reach retirement age, what if I don't reach retirement age to go back home and to be with my family? I miss my grandmother's passing away because I didn't have enough vacation time to go back home. I went from D.C. to back and forth. So there is a lot of consideration, even though it was more expensive to live, obviously, in Hawaii than in Texas. The name of your blog is Cooking Up Fire. That refers to financial independence, retire early. Certainly, that's not the common theme for the FIRE movement to say, hmm, maybe I will leave early, go live in a high cost of living area, maybe put off retirement till later or when I'm not even as financially sound. That doesn't go with the normal dogma, does it? 
No, usually you're talking about people who go, oh, geo-arbitrage. I'm going to live in an expensive city where I can make a lot of money and stash away as much as I can, get a second job, do a side hustle, and then move somewhere cheaper as part of my strategy for being able to make my retirement funds, as it were, stretch further or you know, whatever they end up doing. Instead of retiring, they end up doing a passion project, for example. In my case, honestly, I was planning on retiring and then moving, but there was just this opportunity at work that allowed me to work from home in Hawaii with a lot of extras added to it. We don't need to get into details. And the timing was just right. I just managed to catch the mark, the housing market right when it did a little tiny dip. <laughs> and I wanted to have a baby. And I want, like Bobby said, I wanted to have somebody to be able to help watch my kids. My mom voluntold me. She was watching them. Farnish, let's talk a little bit about the immigrant story. You were born to Iranian parents, although I believe you were born and grew up in Worcester, Mass. I'm married to an Iranian woman, so I'm very familiar with kind of the Iranian immigration story. And if you look around the United States where Iranians tend to congregate, you end up in places like New York and D.C. and L.A., and even outside in Canada and Toronto. I mean, these are really high cost of living areas. Do you think there's a part of the immigrant story that pulls people to these big cities that happen to be high cost of living? I think the big pull, at least with our family and our family's friends, was the education. So New York, Toronto, where we settled in Worcester, Massachusetts, all near universities and yeah. So getting your PhD is standard in Iranian culture. Uh, my father and mother, it was never about, are you going to go to college? It was like, where are you going to go to grad school? You know, they're still trying to get my husband to get his MBA. Like they are so obsessed with school. So I think school plus climate also is what drives the immigrants from Iran, at least to these places. I know LA, is fertile ground for immigrants to come and, and not only enjoy the weather that they were enjoying in, say, Shiraz or Tehran, but also real estate. Iranians are obsessed with real estate. They probably identified some of these areas as where you could experience substantial real estate growth. A lot of the people in LA who Iranians who've made their wealth have done so through entrepreneurship and real estate. And where better to do that where there are sunny skies? So I think that from my end, I think those are the draws. Jamila, I saw you shaking your head as Farnoosh was speaking. Your family immigrated from Jamaica and ended up in Brooklyn. Why Brooklyn? Well, that's similar to that story of probably like Iranian immigrants and most immigrants, you know, these are like the major like settling points for so many immigrants because of the access and, you know, it's the major airports and ways to get here. So you have a lot of Caribbean people who end up same places, you know, like in terms of like New York City, Canada, Florida. So a lot end up in Florida. Atlanta. So a lot on the Eastern coast, you'll find that a lot of Caribbean families land. And that's where my family landed in Brooklyn. So the common theme seems to be climate, but there's also a part about, you know, opportunities, education, entrepreneurship tends to land you in expensive cities. Let me read two other quotes from Sex in the City. Beauty is fleeting, but a rent controlled apartment overlooking the park is forever. 
I spent $40,000 on shoes and I have no place to live? I will literally be the old woman who lived in her shoes. Bobby, tell me a little bit about the economics of your first apartment in New York City as an adult. So first of all, let's just note that the character of Carrie Bradshaw made some poor economic choices. (laughs) (laughs) Just to put that out there. Yeah, I I think that the importance of real estate and the importance of getting a good real estate situation cannot be underestimated. So knowing that I wanted to live in New York City kind of indefinitely in my 20s, I, I made that decision that that's where I wanted to stay. I did decide to invest in owning real estate at a very young age. And I bought a time not that different from what's going on now in the city where prices were falling. And it was very scary to buy this first piece of real estate. It was it, not very expensive. It was $90,000, which even then was not expensive. Even, you know, you can factor in real estate, uh, inflation, all that. That was, that was pretty cheap for a decent sized studio. And I did it because I felt I wanted the security of having roots. One of the terrifying things about being in a high cost of living area is if you do rent at the market rate, which is something, I don't know if that's unique to New York, but if you have protections like a rent control department, that may be different. There's all kinds of restrictions there too. But if you have a market rate apartment, you're very vulnerable to being evicted or having your rent raised. So I think, and that can really mess with your math, whatever budget you put together. So I really valued early on owning real estate. And because of that, I've been able to flip higher and higher and higher. That said, real estate is always vulnerable and it's not a liquid asset. So because we now own a family size apartment on the Upper East Side, and there's a lot of uncertainty about New York and New York City real estate right now, that is something that we're not that happy about these days because we do see the value, the likely value. We're not selling our apartment, but the the value, you still have that number in your head probably going down. And that's a little bit unsettling. It's funny because most people outside of New York just think of the prices going up and up and up, but that's not true. There are actually downturns in the market, even in New York. No, it went down. We bought this apartment that I'm in in 2007 and the values did go down. Of course, if you don't sell, you don't take the loss, but they did go down soon after that. And then they were up as of January. We were in great shape and now they're falling and there's really not a lot of buying going on. So we really don't know where it will be. As of now, our plan is not to move until my son is done with school, which is another six years till he goes to college. But then we will, if we don't move out of New York City, we will probably downsize within New York City because it is a lot to carry. Kathleen, let's talk about the cost of living. Hawaii is another place where real estate prices are fairly high, but it's not just real estate. Talk about the price of a gallon of milk in Hawaii or filling up your gas tank. Okay, first off, I can't talk about the price of filling up the gas tank because I have not I have not filled up my gas since February. We also have an electric car, so I have no idea what it costs to get gas right now. But as for things like a gallon of gas, you know, you see images people post on Facebook where they're like, oh, it's $8 for a gallon of milk in Hawaii. Yes, but that's the primo not on sale price. If you look over one slot to a slightly different brand, that one's on sale for $5.29 a gallon, which is about almost half price of what people are splashing up on, on Facebook or on the news. So there's areas where if you do selective shopping and you compare prices and you're willing to be flexible, you can save money on. This is probably the story for anybody anywhere. 
John Hoosh, let's talk about anyone, anywhere. You, at the age of 22, were $30,000 in debt and living in New York City, and you wrote you climbed out of debt in the most expensive city in the country. Wouldn't it have been easier to start somewhere else? Hmm, easy is relative, right? I had financial challenges, but it was otherwise awesome to be in New York City. And as Bobby mentioned, as a financial journalist, making relatively more than my cohorts who just graduated from Columbia, who were in Bumblebee, Arkansas, working for the Gazette and making like 11 cents an hour, having to get three other side hustles just to make rent. I realized I didn't want to be surfing the country, not knowing where I'd be living. I wanted to be in New York, even if it meant not being, say, on camera, the coveted broadcasting role. I was like, I'm happy. I, I just love the industry. I'd be, I'll be a producer for the rest of my life, but I don't want to sacrifice lifestyle and proximity to my family, which, you know, I was just a Greyhound bus ride away from Massachusetts at this point. And the uh, the best advice anyone ever gave me was if you get the chance to work in New York, even if it's just for a year or two, do it. If you are career driven, because then you take that network, you take that sort of glamour of working in New York and you go to some other part of the country and it is perceived well. And you probably will be able to negotiate higher salary and start in that new market with a leg up and have that leverage. There is some sort of, you know, there's there's a cachet to having worked in New York when you go to another market, perhaps similar to like having worked a couple years in London and then coming to New York City to try to find the international experience is sort of really valued a lot in the workplace. And so I I knew what I was doing. I knew that it was I was behind the financial eight ball, but also being in New York, again, access to having other job opportunities, those side hustles to try to pay down the debt and try to feel like I wasn't just constantly living paycheck to paycheck was I think more available to me. I was babysitting. I was dog sitting. I was writing for freelance newspaper. I was writing freelance for newspapers. And ultimately at 26, I got a book deal. Would that have happened in another city? Maybe, but New York's also the publishing capital. So I, I like to think that New York granted me a lot of these opportunities that other cities and towns, maybe there would have been a delay. Jamila, does it get easier to live in a high cost of living area? You've written about living in the Dumbo area of Brooklyn. And I believe you had a place which you really enjoyed living in. And the idea crossed your mind that if you sold it, because you could make a lot of money on selling it, that you might not have enough to move into another place in the same area. Doesn't that feel wrong in a sense? I mean, almost like you're not making any headway. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I was born in Jamaica, but I literally feel like, you know, New York has been my home because I came here when I was about two years old. So there's an advantage to that. Like I've grown, this is all I've known is New York and specifically Brooklyn and this high cost of living area. So it's not much of a shock to me. It's not, you know, like it's one of those things where everyone like comes and marvels to go to Times Square and travels from all over the world. But, you know, growing across like just a skip away, it's really not that big a deal. <laughs> so I think that obviously helps with us and our decision to stay 
in New York for the moment. I'm in Brooklyn because this is where our family is. We have three kids and family is really important and support with having kids and being an entrepreneur now and, you know, my husband being a teacher. But to talk a little bit about Dumbo, so similar to Bobby, you know, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to buy something in Dumbo. So it stands for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass for people who are not in New York before it was what it is today. So it was literally like nothing was really that developed. It was just like a kind of unknown area. And I was lucky enough to buy a studio apartment. It was the cheapest thing that (laughs) was listed in the building. And I was like, okay, that one. And so, and luckily by the time it closed, I, the, it had, it had appreciated in value. And so I still own that today and it's appreciated obviously since then. It's been over 10 years, I think at this point. Yeah, definitely over 10 years since owning it. And yeah, like I've gotten offers for people to buy it. And I'm just like, one, it's also a personal decision for me to want to keep it. And also it just feels like, yeah, I could not like, it's a studio apartment. Like we have, we're a family of five now. If we were to buy a two or three bedroom condo in the same area, like we, it'd be ridiculous. So my husband and I made the decision, even though I love downtown area of Brooklyn and Dumbo, I love the amenities to move further into Brooklyn where when at the time we bought the house, prices were not as expensive. So we chose to move further away from the amenities and um, some of the diversity that you get closer to the city. And now we are in an area where we have a backyard, but it's a three-family house with a, a basement apartment. So we consciously made that choice, though, to, to say, okay, we want to stay in New York. We can't really afford to buy again in that area that we love. So let's move further away. And I just want to make another point that even coming further in wasn't that bad because like my husband's family lives maybe three, four blocks away. So he, we are also used to this area too. And so it wasn't like it was a huge change. It was just, it was just these are the decisions you make if you are going to stay somewhere like here, where can I actually afford to buy? And you probably have to give up some amenities to, to do something like this. When you talked about possibly selling that loft, you said, and I quote, I don't want to give up my small piece of the American pie. And I just find it interesting that this piece of real estate, this location to you meant a lot about kind of living the American dream. Yeah. I mean, it's the best investment I've ever made in my life. I feel like that has changed for my family, like the trajectory of wealth. You know, it's also very personal because in that building, like in Dumbo, I don't see a lot of people who look like me that own like black women, black people, like, you know, there are people there, but it's not the majority. And so, and then, you know, around the corner, there are, it's public housing where that is the majority, you know, it's mostly um, minorities. And so I feel a real sense of pride being able to have done that. And it almost feels like it doesn't really matter how much someone offers me, unless what they offer me can afford me to buy a bigger apartment that it's like, part of me feels like I have to do this for my people. Like we have to stay, I have to keep a piece of the pie for my family, for people to see that it's possible to do something like this, even though honestly, I will be, I always say this, like times are different. And so, you know, I think I had like all the stars aligned for me to be able to do that. I think it's a lot harder now for um, people to get started in New York. Um, But it's not impossible. I still think there's glimmers of hope for people. And Farnoosh, it's notable that you made a similar move early in the year as the pandemic was heating up. You left the city and moved to the suburbs of New Jersey. Talk about that decision to leave. 
I just wrote about it for Bloomberg Opinion. It was like, because it is at some point, I'm sure we've all, all New Yorkers here on the panel, you've thought about leaving. And at first it's met with a lot of resistance because I, you know, 19 years in, in, in New York City for me, such prosperity I earned living in New York and I'm grateful to the experience. So I was almost feeling like betraying the city that gave me so much to leave, you know, and, but at some, at some point, especially I think when you have children and you start to run the numbers, but also start to think about what are your values? We don't have family in New York. So it's, that was not the, there was no, that was not even a consideration. Um, We have actually more family now in Pennsylvania. So to move further West to New Jersey did make more sense for us, but really the, the real reasons, I would say the big reasons, one, we just wanted more for our children in the sense of having space. We don't have the backyard that Jamila has. You know, if we did that, that would have been a huge help. And then, of course, the pandemic happened and we're living in this apartment that would have been fine otherwise. But now you're living under one roof, you're working under one roof, you're educating your kids. Under, you know, it's like a lot of screaming in a box. And so our mental health was really also impacted, especially the kids especially me. I think we also, this is, this is probably the number one factor in talking to some real estate experts. Like the reason a lot of families leave is because of the matrix that is New York city public school systems and public versus private school. We were educating our son in private school and his sister was soon to follow. Our our kids are six and three now. And I did the math. I was like, do I really want to spend over a million dollars educating them until they graduate high school? Or would I rather have that money in the market or just sitting in a bank account waiting for them when they graduate to help them with starting a business or helping myself retire earlier? Staying in New York and choosing public over private frightened me because I'm pretty like... I'm good at problem solving, but New York City's public school system is a whole other thing. And it was it did feel like rolling the dice a lot because to hear from parents the complaints about rezoning and testing and having to have send their high schooler on a subway, you know, an hour to go up to the Bronx to get the better high school. It, it to me that was tying my stomach into knots. And so my husband and I are both public school educated. We we're not, you know, private school parents. And sometimes I get that question, like, are you private school parents or public school parents? And I'm like, are you basically asking me if I'm rich or poor? Like, what is this question? Because that's a loaded question. So we moved to New Jersey. And also I found out that our son needs more special ed, which his private school was not going to afford. So I was paying more money for an aid. And I was like, this is this is silly. You know, we should move and give them what they need. I'm close to Target now. I've got a finished basement. Life is good. And then, of course, in this environment, I don't really miss a lot. Like, I wasn't even going to brunch. I wasn't really seeing my friends the last couple of months. We felt like we sort of like left Brooklyn in the middle of the night unceremoniously in this pandemic. It was kind of sad, but also in a way, didn't give us that sad feeling of we were, you know, missing out. We just kind of, we just kind of moved you know, 16 miles across a river. Like it's not like we moved countries, it, it, but it does feel like you're, you're leaving forever. 
So I want to echo a lot of what Farnoosh said. First of all, we bought this apartment, as I mentioned, that I'm in in 2007, and it was zoned for a very good public school, and they moved the line one block, and there you go. And that impacted our family tremendously. At the time that we moved, we were a family of three. We had our son, who's now 13 with us. And then we did not know, but we did have my stepchildren came to live with us when they were in fifth and ninth grade. And so we ended up with a three private school tuition family that was not the plan. And as I also mentioned, we had the recession happens then. And we weren't, unfortunately, we were impacted by the recession in terms of our careers. And so we were not in a position to move because to move, you have to have, everyone has to be kind of on W-2s employed. And so we had this apartment that we had stretched to buy, which had gone down in value. And we had all these changes going on. So it was a very precarious few years and we came out strong, which I'm very proud of, but all those things that Farnoosh talk about, or talks about is very real. Had I known about all of those things, we probably would have been in the suburbs where my sister is. She's in Westchester. But we were really locked into New York City because we had made this decision to buy, which I don't regret, but I look back on and you know, with a different information pattern, we might have made different decisions. The kids had a wonderful experience in their private schools. They got into incredible colleges, have wonderful careers, are on track for great careers. It all worked out. But these are very real concerns. I mean, moving that line literally happened to me. And so it's very important to understand what you're getting into, even if a city like New York has some wonderful public schools. In the first half of the show, Farnoosh, Bobby, Kathleen, and Jamila talked about growing up in expensive cities. After the break, we discuss how you know when it's time to leave. But first, want to learn how to manage your money better and in less time today? Jim Wayne created WalletHacks.com to help demystify money. For far too long, experts have made it complicated so they can make money off you. WalletHacks.com offers no products, no services, just information to help you become better with your money. And best of all, it's free. Check it out today at WalletHacks.com. That's W-A-L-L-E-T-H-A-C-K-S.com. And be sure to sign up for their free newsletter. After all, seasons change. So do cities. People come into your life and people go. But it's comforting to know the ones you love are always in your heart. And if you're very lucky, a plane right away. Kathleen, tell me, you moved from Texas back to Hawaii. Any regrets, anything you miss about Texas, or was life any easier there? Well, the rent was certainly, you know what? Actually, no, it wasn't. I thought that I was just thinking the rent was cheaper at the time, but I, I just reamortized my loan last year. So now my, my mandatory mortgage is actually lower than my rent was in Texas. I mean, Tex-Mex is really good, and I miss my <laughs> friends in Texas. I, is that too trite to say? <laughs> Not at all. Jamila, you described your life in corporate America, which you since have left, but you would commute three to four hours a day, and eventually, I believe after having your third child, you decided that that just wasn't an option anymore. You ever look at your life in a high-cost-of-living area and think, Hmm, if I had lived somewhere a little bit cheaper, I could have left corporate America years before this, and maybe life would have been easier. Maybe I would have become an entrepreneur sooner. 
and it would have pushed me even farther. Does that ever enter your mind? Yeah, so not really. So similar to Farnoosh, I feel that, you know, the opportunities that I was afforded, the career trajectory that I had was because I was in New York. I often, when I was working in corporate America, I I would, I love to like, to talk to my coworkers in other areas like Atlanta or the lower cost of area living. And they, even though the, the scale was adjusted for their income, like they still made really good money. So sometimes I would think, wow, if I lived in like Atlanta or Florida with this income um, with, or the income of a, a coworker that lives there, like this would be even more amazing. But it was interesting having that reverse commute because I would drive those that hour and a half, two hours to New Jersey. And it was like another world. And um, well, and where I worked, also, it wasn't very cheap either. You know, I, I would live, I worked in an area that was, the houses were high, but you got much more land and space and coming back into like a little apartment for the same price. So, you know, I always say I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have had the, I wouldn't have been chiseled into the Jamil I am today without those experiences, without the commute, which forced me to listen to podcasts, which forced me to find out about financial independence. So I think that all worked out. But I think, you know, honestly, I am more open to moving, I believe, than my husband. So that's the other thing. When you are in a partnership with someone, um, it's not just you. And we have three kids and we have family. And so I always say, you know, I would give somewhere else a try. And But my husband's actually more like planted in New York. He has, he just, he, this is what he knows. He's a simple man. He just kind of like wants to do the simple things. So I think too, that's also a consideration for people. Like if it was just me by myself, no kids, I may right now have made a choice to, you know, geo arbitrage, you know, and so my money can go longer. But I think when you have a family, like that's not just a decision that you make on your own. You do have to consider obviously your partner. So that's one of all the, the other reasons that we're, we're here. Arnoush, Monday morning quarterback for me a little bit. Should you guys have left earlier or did you do it just right? We had plans to leave prior to COVID-19. We actually put our apartment in Brooklyn on the market in September of 2019. Should we have moved sooner? You know, we had so much fun in Brooklyn. You know, we, we really, I feel like we sucked New York dry. We got everything we wanted out of it. And we you know, I'm a planner and I knew that this move, like Bobby mentioned earlier, like real estate's not liquid and, you know, you need to buy yourself time to sell and then maybe rent for a little bit and then strike as another, on another place. So now with kids in school, I'm trying to also align it with their school year so that there are no interruptions. And so we did start almost a year ago to plant the seeds to move. We were selling in a down market, so that was a bummer, but we had no idea how fortunate we were when we closed on the sale of our Brooklyn apartment as sellers in February. And had we dragged our feet or had we not been quick to close, we may not have gotten the the deal. The, The buyers may have gotten totally spooked and backed out, which has happened. And so while we didn't get, you know, the great price that maybe we would have in 2016 or whatever, we got out, you know, we got to cash out and we were there for 11 years. So it wasn't like we didn't make any money. We made nice substantial equity cashed out. We quickly moved into a short-term rental in the neighborhood to allow our kids to keep the, you know, keep the routines, go to the same schools and just not have a disruption to our commutes and all of that. Then 
we actually bid on a couple houses lost because it was the spring market now and everybody wants to move in the spring to be in the suburbs by the school year, the next school year. And then March 22nd rolls around and everyone's sheltering in place. And there's one house that comes on the market that seems to check off a lot of the boxes. I at first said, no way. I don't want to even go down this path because with the market had its worst week since 2009, you know, it just didn't feel like the right time to be making such a big decision. And I was going back and forth, but our real estate agent said, look, just come take a look. They're requiring masks and gloves. It's an appointment only open house. So we went and we said, let's just make the offer. Let's, let's bid asking price, which prior to this week would have never gotten you a deal. We bid asking price, got the house. And it was that weird week, literally of 2020, where if you had bought a piece of property, you probably came out strong because what happened now, what's happening now and what like subsequent months was back to that craze, even worse, where now people are really realizing they need to get the heck out, get out of Dodge in New York and 10, 10 offers per house. One house got 40 bids as if we're in a silent auction for a trip to Cancun. This is a house, people. What are you doing? It's crazy. Like, I'm so glad I avoided that. But people are like, oh, you were so smart. I'm like, no, I was just the dumb fool who, you know, held her breath and made an offer on a house in a crazy week just because I had the equity. You know what I mean? Like, I, I had all the ducks in a row. And yeah, there was a lot that I didn't know. But I also knew, like, if I didn't move, that's worse. Sometimes you have to make the decision and then deal with the consequences. That to me is more progress than just staying stationary and, and, and continuing a life that is not happy, is not fulfilling, is, is in some cases, you know, detrimental to your mental health. And so we just, we knew come high, hell or high water, we had to leave, whether as renters or owners, like we had to go across the river. I love what you just said about making the jump and taking a chance. It reminds me of one last quote from Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> There's a moment in every relationship where romance gives way to reality. Bobby, sum it up. Is it worthwhile and can you be financially responsible living in a high cost of living area? And I would add on to that, is it okay to leave? Everyone should do what is right for them given the options that they have. And I think what's great about what Farnoosh said is that she created choices for herself. So when she had to make the move, she was able to do so. My family is making some some choices right now. We spent a lot of this quarantine time at a family house, a larger family house, I should say, that was a multi-generational house that was, we had mixed feelings being there, but it had been for sale for a year and a half. And because of the opportunity presented by this situation, we were able to sell it, but now we don't have that house. So we've made some other decisions. My stepson, who's now 20 years old and is in college in New York City, could very well just quote, com- I mean, it's not even commute. It's virtual school. Let's be honest. It's a little ridiculous. But we are going to have him move, as was originally planned, with his two college friends to an apartment. So he's it's off-campus housing, and school will probably be mostly remote. But we are going to do that because sanity, as Farnish mentioned. I mean, he needs to live as close a life to a college kid's life as we can give him, and the money is budgeted for that. So as he came home in March when they evacuated the NYU dorms and everyone had to get out. So he's been home for six months, not experiencing college as we would like him to. So we're going to have that. We're going to spend that money to get him to as close a college experience as possible. We're also likely to spend money for me to get to 
a workspace. I was using a workspace somewhat downtown that I really love, but because I don't want to go on the subways and I don't want to spend the time because our 13 year old is going to be doing virtual learning for now. There's a workspace that is a block and a half away. That's not like a WeWork. It's more of a club, I would say, atmosphere, but I can work at it and do a lot of my writing there. And so we're going to spend you know, a few hundred bucks a month for me to have this space a block and a half away where I can go for three hours in the morning, come home for lunch, make my son lunch, check in with him, make sure everything's okay, and then go back to the workspace for a few hours in the afternoon. And that's going to be our planned routine in September. So we're making adjustments. But we have had those moments in the past couple of weeks where my husband had said to me, we got to figure out, are we going to rent something for a couple months in the fall? I mean, what are we going to do? Because it's very tough. And we're in, you know, we're in a three bedroom, three bath apartment for New York city. That's not so bad, but we do have adult children that would not normally be living at home. My 23 year old stepdaughter would normally be traveling for work a lot, or perhaps she'd be living with friends. She's home. The 20 year old is home and quote, normally in the before, before COVID, they would be living their independent young adult lives. So we are in this apartment and we're making adjustments. And by the way, if your listeners have suggestions, send them my way. I was about to say, Kathleen, can you give us some tips and tricks? I mean, you've been making a go at it in a very expensive city, Hawaii. How do you make it financially reasonable? The honest answer is you earn a high income. But this month, I don't know if you know, I've been trying to live off of my husband's hypothetical income, he's actually laid off right now. So we're just living on our current income. So some of it is like, Bobby, you've got your son's going to be staying with two other, I'm assuming two other roommates. So you're already splitting the cost. Yeah. College classmates. Yeah. Yeah. So they're splitting the cost. I'm assuming you're not footing the bill for all of them. And the rent was very reasonable because of what's going on in New York City. So we got a very good So you've got a good situation. deal. Yes. Right. So right now, before they even start going, this is what I did before I bought my house is I, I test ran the budget. So whatever the difference between what I was paying in rent and what would be the higher cost of what I need to spend, I started test running it now, taking it out of my income and just setting aside for, into my emergency fund. As for here, I mean, like you said, there's always some places you can find, I shouldn't say always, almost always places you can find good deals. The question is whether or not it's somewhere you're willing or feel safe to live. But there's other areas you can save in, you know, cook at home, make low cost meals, prep your meals if you can, do your own laundry. I have a friend that dry cleans everything, you know, look at all of your costs and see what you can, what you can make more efficient. So Jamila, you do a lot of financial counseling. You have a 20-something getting out of college talking about wanting to move to New York or other high cost of living area. What do you tell them? Go for it. Don't go for it. Is it worthwhile? Is it not worthwhile? Well, I'm a dreamer and risk taker. So I, I, at that age, would go for it. And it depends on that kind of person's mindset and their trajectory and what they have planned. But, you know, I think it's... Living in New York and making it or in a high cost of living area, income, like Kathleen said, like that is like the basis. Like I think most of us here or who are making it and having progress, like not just staying stagnant with our finances in life, but like actually, you know, you're buying homes and, you know, investing and do all the things that we like doing part of that's mostly because of our income. So it's like choosing the right career that has the right, you know, kind of ladder to climb when salary is important. 
I also think that, you know, from my experience too, like I have a lot of friends who don't earn a lot of money and they're still in New York. Some of them were lucky enough to have subsidized housing. So that's the other thing where it's just like, if you're not going to earn a lot of money, if you're not in a field that has that potential, then you have to find ways to save on your, your living expenses, mainly where the mortgage or rent, you know? And so I think it's really important that anyone who's either planning to come here or is planning to stay here, either gets real clear on, on how they can grow their income and, or, you know, maybe they will be that person that only spends 30, 40,000. And in a high cost of living area, like New York, the thing about it is this, yes, there's a lot of expensive options, but you also have a lot of options that are not as expensive. So there are also a lot of cheap like food options and because of the diversity where you can actually save in a lot of areas too. So you just have to know all those things, get tapped into communities like this podcast so that you can like start being aware and knowing like how to make these decisions for yourself. So it's clear from the conversation that if the question is, should you live in a high cost of living area? Certainly the answer is go for it. There are many ways to evolve and make it work and many opportunities to be had, but also this idea that when it's time to leave, it's okay to pick up and go when your life changes and it's appropriate for you to start a new adventure. I'd like to end this episode the way I end each episode by giving each guest a chance to tell us what's up next in their life and where we can find them. Farnoosh, what's going on in your life and where can listeners find you if they want to learn more? Well, I've been having a lot of fun with the podcast at SoMoneyPodcast.com. I've been doing more on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi and check out my recent writing at nextadvisor.com and on Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. Bobby, what's up next in your life and where can we find you? So first of all, thank you also for having me as well. And thank you, everyone. It's so nice to do a podcast with friends like this. I am hard at work on my two podcasts, Money with Friends and Financial Grownup. I'm also working on my next book, which is a parenting book called Raising Financial Grownups. And it's aimed at older children and helping them get into the realistic world of managing their finances as young adults. And I am working, Farnoosh is coaching me a little bit. That's a little behind the scenes on my Instagram. So please follow me on Instagram at Bobby Rebel and the number one, Bobby Rebel one, and help me send me ideas because I'm working on it. I'm working on, on being the next Farnoosh Sharabi of Instagram or, or getting learning tips from her. You know what I mean? She's, she's great. Definitely follow Farnoosh and then also follow me and Jamila and Kathleen and you, Jeffy, everyone. Thank you. And Kathleen, what's going on in your life and where can people find you if they want to know more? Well, I'm actually winding down my blog. I've got another side project that I want to start ramping up. But if you want to find out more about me, you can go to my blog, cookingupfire.com, or you can find me on Doc G's Facebook group, the Earn Invest Facebook group. And Jamila, where can people find you and what's up next in your life? Yeah. So if you're listening to this podcast, you can find the Journey to Launch podcast. That's my podcast wherever um, you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or go to journeytolaunch.com. I'm also active on social media. So I'm at Journey to Launch on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I most hang out on Instagram. Follow me there. You know, I, I encourage everyone, and if you're on this journey to financial freedom and independence and you you're on this journey. I call you a journeyer. So, you know, come join the tribe, become a journeyer. Um, let's connect. I love, I love talking to journeyers. 
And I have to mention, Jamila is part of our cast of Money with Friends. So definitely please everyone tune into all the Money with Friends episodes, especially the ones with Jamila. They're always among our most popular. So we're honored to have her as part of the Money with Friends family as well. Well, normally I would sign off here, but I can't help but torture you guys with a few more quotes that I found notable before we end the episode. I like my money right where I can see it, hanging in my closet. The fact is, sometimes it's hard to walk in a single woman's shoes. That's why we need really special ones now and then to make the walk a little more fun. Maybe you have to let go of who you were to become who you will be. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Bobby Rebel, Kathleen Hudgens, Jamila Soufrant, and Farnoosh Tarabi. That's a wrap. Okay, I have to admit, the audio quality on this next segment is very poor. This is a talk I gave at the Camp Fi Camp Financial Independence South in Little Rock, Arkansas, two years ago. I've been looking for this video and audio for a long time because it was one of my favorite talks. I indeed was able to find it. Unfortunately, the audio is not that clear, but I think you will be able to hear it well enough. And this is one of those talks that I think is worth it. I'm proud of this one. I think it brings together a lot of my philosophies about personal finance and financial independence. So without further ado, here is my talk from Camp Fi South in 2018. Hope you enjoy it and please excuse the audio. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right, we've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Well, J.L. Collins said it perfectly, right? There is a simple path to wealth. So there's nothing utterly complicated about financial independence. I didn't say it was easy, right? We all know it's hard. We all know you've got to go and you've got to work and you've got to save money and you've got to spend less. That's not the point. But the point is it's simple. So if it's so simple, why are there so few financially independent people out there in the world? The reason why is because there's something about the headspace. 
There's something about the philosophy that, that people just can't wrap their head around. So being a philosopher, uh, I like to talk in stories. Anyone who's talked to me over the last few days knows that. Uh, I like to also talk in allegories. Um, so I'd like to tell you a short story, and this is the story of three brothers. It's called Three Roads for Three Brothers. So once there were three brothers who set off on a journey of a lifetime by taking three separate roads. Now, each brother was quite unique, so those roads diverged fairly quickly. The oldest brother, well, he was thought of as the wisest, and so the reason was is his path was straight and clear. The middle brother, he was a pretty good hiker, but he got distracted easily. So often it was hard to keep him on his path. And the last brother, the youngest brother, well, he was thought of as kind of lazy. He neither walked too quickly, nor did he get distracted easily. He was just slow. He was deliberate. So the eldest of the three brothers had a concrete plan in mind, because he hated his road. He didn't like hiking at all. To him, the journey was all about the destination. He was all about the struggle to get there. His thirst to reach that destination was so great that he often skipped meals, skipped sleep. He would do anything it took to plod farther and farther along. And guess what? He got really tired. It turns out that he traveled a huge distance in a short time. His physical fatigue, his emotional weakness were all beat by the idea of all he could achieve once he hit his destination. He'd be free. He could go travel to foreign lands, or better yet, climb the highest mountains. This was the steam of his engine. This was the gas of his car. The middle brother, the middle of the three, he wasn't overjoyed with his road either. But he didn't have the same strength and dedication as the oldest brother. So what he would do is he would go and travel for a few miles, and then he'd get exhausted, and he'd go out in the fields and up into the mountains, he'd leave his path and go take a flight of fancy. And although these flights of fancy ultimately made his journey longer, when he got back to the road, he had more energy and he was able to start again. The youngest brother was completely different. The youngest brother walked down his road and he was in no hurry at all. He really loved his road. So he had no reason to go take a side path. There was no flights of fancy for him. And when he got tired, he'd sit right on the road and eat a meal. And when the sun went down and it got dark, he'd pull out a sleeping bag and he'd go to sleep. When the eldest brother, the eldest of the three, got to the end of the road, he was overjoyed. But he was also exhausted. He eventually did do all those things he dreamed of. He did travel the foreign lands, and he did climb the highest mountains. But when he was done with that, he kind of, he really questioned his own purpose. What now? Some days he really wondered why he was in such a rush to get to the end of his road in the first place. The middle brother, 
The middle brother reached his destination years after the first brother. He was a lot less tired, right? Because he had taken some breaks. But he still ultimately questioned his purpose. Now the younger brother, as always, the youngest brother was quite interesting. He took his time, and as he got to the end of his road, with his other brothers looking around, he said, hey guys, and then he turned around and walked back the way he came. So my big question for you guys is which brother are you? I'm this guy, and the reason why is I'm covering my head because the sun <laughs> So can I just hands? How many of you would consider yourself like the eldest brother? Anyone? Okay. How about any of you guys see yourself as the middle brother? Okay. And anyone see yourselves as the youngest brother? Alright, anyone who said they were like the oldest brother, can you give me one sentence and say why? Just say what you're doing now and what you're trying to get done. Yeah, I was going to say um, I'm more like the eldest brother because the, the destination is what I have in mind and I'm trying to do everything I can to get to that point mm -hmm. because I can see the finish line. And so everything else just kind of falls by the wayside so that I have hyper-focus on that. All right, anyone who identifies with the middle brother, just a sentence or two of why. Not all those who wander are lost. <laughs> all right, and any of you guys who are the youngest brother, we've heard some of you guys speak, so I know some of you guys are out there. Anyone give a sentence or two? I'm trying to build like a life of purpose today instead of front-loading the sacrifice and having that life in 10 years from now. Excellent, and we're going to talk about <laughs> All right, so the truth of the matter is there are thousands of roads, right? They're not just... And I'm not here to make a value judgment on which road you're on, but I think we need to look closely at the eldest brother and the youngest brother because they're the extremes. So let's start a little bit with the eldest brother. See, the problem with the eldest brother is he doesn't understand the money mind. And this is part of the reason that he's so exhausted at the end of his path. What's the money mind now, you ask? Um, let me start with myself. I never expected nor thought of financial independence until I was there. And most of you probably think, wow, the day you realize you're financially independent, you must have been overjoyed and ex you know, exhilarated. And I was, for a moment. And then I actually got kind of down and depressed and sad, because I had been spending my whole life getting to that point, and I hadn't left a lot of time to think about everything else. And in a sense, that's what the money mind now is. The big, audacious goal of financial independence, of having money, of making your way in this world is so big, we sometimes ignore everything else. And when we ignore everything else, we don't concentrate on it. Concentrate on it. And we don't. When we don't concentrate on it, we don't work on it. So what are we missing? Well, purpose. The big problem with money right now is you start thinking that financial independence is your purpose, right? With side hustling and spreadsheeting and all your frugal hacks and you know all the things that we do—the blogs, the podcasts. It's real easy to start thinking that that's what life is. But you see, in my estimation, financial independence is plan B, right? 
It's an escape hatch. It's adjunct to plan A. And plan A is life. But if you don't start working on the purpose behind plan A, plan B ain't going to make you real happy either. People think, oh, well, I'll get to financial independence and I'll figure it out. Once I get there, I'm going to travel. I'm going to spend time with friends and family. I'm going to sit in front of the TV and watch Netflix. And they go travel, but most people stop after a while. You go to all those big places you wanted to go, you see those big things you wanted to see, and then you're kind of back to the beginning. And you say, I want to be with family, but let me tell you, I have a 14-year-old, and he comes straight home and goes up to his room. He loves me, but he does not want to spend every hour with me. And when it's Monday morning at 10 a.m., and you want to go out and talk with your best buddy and have coffee, guess what? He or she's at work. It's not just purpose. It's also identity. I was lucky. I grew up knowing that I wanted to be a physician. That was a big part of my identity. But something unexpected happened when I learned I was financially independent. You see, I'd go to work and I'd have a bad day at work. And that thing, that thing that two years ago would have bothered me, I would have let it go and come back the next day because quitting wasn't even an option. But all of a sudden you go to work and something kind of pisses you off and you're like, I'm financially independent, I don't have to be here. And as opposed to building your identity, it actually systematically takes it apart. And that's just if you're the third brother, right? So in some ways I was the third brother. I had a goal, I had an identity, I was going to be a doctor. So what if you're the first brother, the eldest, where you don't like work? So your identity becomes financial independence, right? You're on the path, you're headed somewhere. But again, once you get there, what happens next? Once you rely on your plan B as plan A, what do you have left? And last is connection. We are stealth wealth practitioners. We learn early on in our journey that family and friends mostly don't want to know. We don't go to our workplace and spout off about Mr. Money Mustache. If we do, we generally do it once and not twice. <laughs> and the reason why is phi is somewhat of a superpower and you are not going to have buy-in from everyone in your family. But there's a dark side to financial independence. There's a dark side to stealth wealth. It's loneliness. Once you hit financial independence, and then you're like, I'm retiring early, and what do people around you say? Are you sick? <laughs> Are you having a crisis? No, I'm celebrating my life. They, they don't understand that. And again, when you're around, and you want to be together and connected and with people, they not only don't get you, they're nowhere to be found. So, there is a solution. If you're the first brother and you don't love your job, you've got to build purpose, identity, and connection into your path from day one. It has to be adjunct. It can't be separate. It can't be first financial independence, then everything else. They have to go together. And if you can do that, then you can take advantage of another life hack, which is front-loading the sacrifice.
So when I made this slide, I didn't realize how many military people would be here. <laughs> so I'm going to ask a question, and if you don't answer this right because my research was wrong, oh well, what can I do? What do you think takes the most energy? Takeoff, cruising, or landing? The answer is takeoff, just in case. What takes the most energy? What takes the most fuel? Takeoff. Take Takeoff. Right. The problem is that getting them from step A to step B is the hardest. Once you're at cruising altitude, momentum will carry you most of the rest of the way. So this is why it's so important when you're in your 20s to think about how you're going to fuel the trip for the rest of your life, especially if you're the first brother and are not in love with your work. So why is front-loading so important? You guys already know the answer, compound. Right? So we know if you put $10,000 in a bank account or an investment account yet at the age of 20, it's going to be worth a heck of a lot more in 20 years than if you take that same $10,000 and put it in at 30 and wait 10 years. We know interest compounds, but debts also compound. Right? So if you owe money and you don't pay that off quickly, your debt is compounding every year. And then the thing that also people don't realize is that skills and experience compound. So those skills and experiences you build even doing a job you don't like at the age of 22, sorry, <laughs> will compound and will pay dividends as you get older. And there's something else important you have when you're 25 that you don't have when you're my age, which is 45. You've got boundless energy. <laughs> like, when I was a resident, I would show up for my shift at 8 in the morning, and we'd finish at 5. I'd go home, I'd have dinner with my wife, and I'd come back at 7 and do a moonlight shift. And I'd work from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And then I'd go to the cafeteria, get some breakfast, and be back in my shift from 8 to 5. I did this two days a week for six months. And that's how I came for my first house. I couldn't have done that. Man, I miss a few hours, and I barely function. And not only that, but I didn't have a mortgage at that point. I didn't have children at that point. So front-loading did a lot of things for me. And I happened to do it anyway because I liked my job. But if I didn't like my job, this would have been the quickest way to get where? To get to the perpetual money machine. Right? Because what we really want, all of us, especially people who don't like their jobs, especially the eldest brothers, is they want to have enough money in investments, real estate, side hustles, what have you, that the money comes in passively and you can do it forever. It's perpetual. That was the eldest brother. And to talk about the eldest brother again, if you don't like your job, find purpose, identity, and connection elsewhere in your life and build it just as you build your W-2. Front load the sacrifice. Build your perpetual money machine and then get out. Now that was the first brother. Let's talk a little bit about the third brother because I think the third brother, the youngest, has a superpower. And I think we shouldn't pay short trip to the superpower. What the youngest brother understands that the eldest doesn't is that money, money is just an intermediary. So what do I mean by that? 
Well, let's make a few definitions here. Work. What's work? Work is just providing goods and services. If you provide work for someone else, you're employed. So employment is doing goods and services for someone else. And money? Money is just an intermediate. It's potential energy. It is a storage house for goods and services. And that's all. So if that's not confusing enough, let me give you some examples. Let's say you wash dishes for a living. So you go to the restaurant, and you wash dishes all night. You've just provided a service to the restaurant owner. That's work. The restaurant owner is going to pay you in some way. That's employment. The restaurant owner can exchange goods and services with you and give you room and board. That would be exchanging goods and services. Or the restaurant owner can give you money. Money's an intermediary. You can take that money, you go home, you eat a nice and big dinner because you're exhausted from working all day, and then what do you do next? You do, you do dishes. <laughs> Same thing you're doing in your job. You're providing a good service, you're providing a service to yourself, but you're not being paid for it, so it isn't employment, it's just work. Maybe your wife is sitting next to you and you say, honey, I can't do any more dishes, I'll give you a back rub, can you do the dishes? Exchange goods and services. Or maybe, maybe your son has an allowance, and so you take some of that intermediary, that money you got from your restaurant or boss, and you give 10 bucks to your son and say, here, son, can you please do the dishes for us every day? Your son says, sure, takes the 10 bucks, does the dishes, walks to the ice cream store, gets an ice cream cone. Money was an intermediary, he traded the money to the ice cream cone store for a good, the ice cream. So what's magical about the youngest brother? The youngest brother realizes that all he or she has to do, in this case he, is find work that provides purpose, identity, and connection. And if the youngest brother does that, he does not need a perpetual money machine. Why? Because the youngest brother is a perpetual money machine. Barring death and disability, the youngest brother is financially independent from day one, and it has nothing to do with money. He has purpose identity, and connection. And it so happens that it provides him this intermediary called money that he can use to get whatever goods and services he needs for the rest of his life. Now don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that frugality doesn't play a role. Play a role. That youngest brother wants to be frugal. That youngest brother wants to invest. That youngest brother wants to have side hustles. Why? Well, to truly explain why, I have to tell you my story. So you guys know I'm a physician. And a big reason I'm a physician is because of my father. So at the age of eight years old, my father, a prominent oncologist, went to the hospital one day and he collapsed and died. It was completely unexpected. And going through that at that age, when I idolized my father, I wanted to be just like him. And so that's what I did. And that gave me purpose. That gave me identity, and then I went and I started seeing patients, and that gave me connection. And life was good, and I was my own perpetual money machine until I wasn't. Because at some point in my career, I started getting exhausted and burned out, and it was painful and hard sometimes to be a doctor. 
So I went from being like the youngest brother to being like the middle brother because I started needing more breaks. So I work intensely and then I take a break or go on vacation. And I re-energize and then I come back. And that worked until it didn't. And now, as I get older, I realize that maybe I'm more like the oldest brother. And I'm starting to rush towards the end. <laughs> and that maybe my plan B, my financial independence, my side hustles, my real estate gig, my being smart with investing, will be my escape hatch. And that I will find purpose, identity, and connection in other ways. So what am I trying to tell you guys all here? There are many roads, much more than three. And like me, you might start as the youngest brother and end up like the middle or the eldest. Your road may go up and it may go down. Your road may go side to side. You may jump from one road to the next. But if you build purpose and identity and connection into your road from the beginning, it really just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's all going to turn out just fine. All of you, me, all of us, we're going to be just fine. What we do, honestly, for fun, is we walk in the park, which is free. Yeah. You're right by Central when Park. Harry right? was younger, like, we didn't get into this, but, like, infinite free activities through the museums and the cultural resources. And I don't well, yeah, that's... that at the end. Like, there's so much I did with that kid for free. And that's what I was trying to get at, too, with, like, the choices. Even, like, you know, food choices yeah. or places to eat. Like, you know, you can still get, I mean, the pizza is ridiculous. Oh, I remember it was $1.50. Yeah. Now it's $2. But you can still eat for $2 here. Yeah, you know, but, you know, um, I used to take him to a film class right in Dumbo, and we would just spend the day walking around, just doing stuff, and everything is free. Like, yeah. maybe you pay a dollar for that carousel, maybe, I don't remember, but, like, it's just beautiful. You can just, it, there's so much in New York that is literally free, or even, and, like, corporate-sponsored. Right, and I think the other thing, I don't know, if we probably, we didn't really touch upon it, but the part of it, too, like, in these bigger cities, are they're, uh, they're more diverse, and so sometimes when you move to these smaller towns, less expensive, like from like someone like me, you know, yeah, of course I can like, you know, move somewhere there's minorities and it's like us, not as many, um, you know, people that look like me, but that's important to like right. me and raising of my family and my kids. And so part of that too is um, just the diversity. You get more diversity in big cities. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. 
Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.